so I'm very excited that I got two whole hours um, with you guys because uh, um, palliative care, uh, the ED is really where it all starts and, and you guys are the, really the front line for dealing with these dying patients. Um, and so we're going to talk, um, I'm going to talk about the pulse form which is a, and, and the concept of pulse which is something you're going to need to become familiar with. But before I do that, I just want to um, start by asking, what, what do you under, like when you hear the word palliative care or palliative care consult, what is it that, I mean, what, how do you define palliative care? What do you think? So comfort measures at, la at the end when someone's dying. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's death. Death, yeah. right. So yeah, dying. Death, patient. dying, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. Anything else? Uh, pain management. Pain management. Okay. Um, so that is sort of how we're perceived, and 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 that is what part of what we do is we do help with with when patients are dying. But the actual um, definition of palliative care is it's it's comprehensive interdisciplinary care for patients with a serious or chronic illness to help the patient and their family. Um, achieve the goals that they have. Okay, and that sounds like kind of a lot of gobbledygook, but basically what it means is, you know, we have social workers, we have chaplain, we have a nurse, and our focus is helping patients achieve their goals when they have serious or terminal illnesses. And where I trained in palliative care, we actually had a, um, when a patient was admitted to the hospital, um, a res the internal medicine resident had to answer the following question, would you be surprised if this patient died in a year? And if the answer was, no, I wouldn't be surprised, they got an automatic palliative care consult. Because a lot of what we do is we talk about, well, what are, you, what are your goals? What are you hoping to achieve? What's important to you in your life? Um, what is a fate worse than death for you? Would you be willing to live in a nursing home if you got that sick? How are your symptoms managed? And, we, um, and the earlier we get involved, the better. There was actually a study that came out, we were very, very excited about this study in the palliative care world a month ago in the New England Journal. And it randomized patients to, um, who had metastatic lung cancer, um, who were diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, so first time diagnosed with cancer, metastatic, randomized them to an automatic palliative care clinic visit and follow, being followed by palliative care versus not being followed by palliative care. And a couple things you would imagine happened at the end of the study was that the patients followed by palliative care got fewer aggressive measures at the end of life, had their wishes documented more frequently, all these kinds of things. But they actually also lived two months longer than the patients that did not have palliative care. And so we've been like trumpeting this to the oncologists, like, see, we're not killing your patients. Because um, that's the constant kind of battle back and forth. But, um, and, and you may ask, well, why did that happen? Why did the patients live longer? Well. It's hard to know for sure, but what we think it happened is that their symptoms were better managed. When your symptoms are better managed, you eat better, you're more functional, maybe you, you stay healthy for longer. And then the other issue is, you know, and you've seen it all the time, right? You get that fourth line chemo when your performance status is in the toilet, and that's what kills you and tips you over the edge. So maybe it's that they didn't get that fourth line chemo that did them in at the end. Hard, hard to know for sure, but those are the, sort of the hypotheses. So, um, you know, in, in, the, in one of the things that we're doing in the, uh, you know, in, in the emergency room nationally, a good friend of mine is, um, she's ED and a, a palliative care researcher at uh, Mount Sinai, and they're going to start a 
palliative care automatic consult in the emergency department for all cancer patients admitted with out-of-control symptoms. Who is that? Um, her name is Karita Grudson. She's, um, she's just got an ACS, uh, a, a cancer center, or cancer society, American Cancer Society grant, um, and she's going to start this um, RCT in the ER. So, um, and then just a little bit about politics when you're asking us. So one of the things we really, really like is to be called down to the ER to see patients um, because that's where it's really, um, really serious. And there is, you know, the oncologist can get nervous and have been nervous with us in the past. And we've tried to really stress to them, you know, we don't send your patients on hospice unless you say it's okay. And we don't um, uh, make your patients DNR unless you say it's okay is our rule with them. And there's two different kinds of palliative care consoles that you can ask for. One is a goals of care. And if the patient does have a primary oncologist at UCI, then they need to approve that consult if it's a goals of care consult. However, if it's a symptom management consult, the patient's been admitted for out-of-control pain, you know, even if you think they're probably still going to get admitted, um, or you're maybe hoping to not admit them and control their symptoms and send them home, um, we can come down to the ER and help you with that. Um, you know, there's only two of us, and we don't, unfortunately, at this point, have real nighttime coverage except by phone, but we're happy to help you guys by phone um, in the middle of the night if you, if you need just some, some help, and we'll see the patient in the morning. We also now have a, fel we have a fellowship, sort of this fellowship program that's community. There's 12 community hospitalists that are spending, each spending six weeks with us as fellows, um, and there's this period where you can grandfather in and take the palliative care boards up until 2012, so that's what they're doing. After that, you'll have to take a whole one-year fellowship. So they're gonna be working with us also, so there's a palliative care fellow, and they have, uh, they're actually working on Saturdays um, for us now, so we do have somebody in-house during the day on Saturday. Um, so again, earlier, consulting us earlier is what we really like, and for symptoms. Um, so any questions on that, or? Go ahead. So, want to talk for a little bit, you know, maybe just 20 minutes or so, about the pulsed form. How many people know what this is or have heard of it? Nobody. The attendings. Um, okay. So good. So we'll we'll be uh, we'll be the first ones. Um, all right. Oh, I see. I go like. Way too fancy. Can I just use this thing? Okay. Okay. That's okay. I didn't want that sign. <laughs> so, what is poll? So, the, actually, here, I'd like to um, hand this out to people so you can actually see what a real post looks like. Um, thank you guys. Come over here and you can just pass it back. Um, so the POLST is a, is a new kind of form that um, is, tries to allow people to state their treatment preferences in a, in a better fashion. It started in Oregon in 1991. And the idea behind it is it's not just a form. It really is something that establishes this community plan of care. And it's been um, it, it's in, on bright pink paper. And the reason being is that it's for patients. It's to travel with the patient wherever they go. So this idea that, you know, it's the advanced directive that's not locked in the safety deposit box, it's actually with the patient. Um, and it's a physician order. Okay, that's what really differentiates it from, say, an advanced directive. This is an order that, you know, it's a physician order that even if it's filled out by a physician that's not at our hospital, 
um, it does it is a legally binding form that really should be followed but we'll talk in a little bit about um, readdressing it which which also can be done um, and it's a portable document it should be honored at all healthcare settings so it goes with the patient to a SNF to a um, to home back to the hospital and it stays with the patient. So if this comes in with the patient, you need to make sure it stays with them wherever they go. Um, a copies can be made and copies are legal. Okay, so if someone comes in with a white copy, that's okay. Um, okay. Um, again, the target population is the same as the palliative care population. Would I be surprised if this patient died in a year? Those are the people that we're hoping will have a pulse. And there's a big move. I'm on a statewide committee we're trying to really push that this starts to be utilized and filled out by primary care physicians. Again, you probably haven't been seeing it much. You will start to see it more because we're going to actually start doing them on the floors for patients uh, and in the primary care offices. So the hope is that um, the that patients will have it. So anyone who's medically frail, who's chronically ill, who has a serious health condition um, really should have these. Okay. Um, so the in California, it was passed in January 2009 by the Senate bill. It was made legal. There's about 20-something other states that have the Pulse. And in Oregon, it's been, do, do, it's been on since 1991, 85% of SNF patients have this form. So it's become very commonplace. And the idea is that it, it really makes your life a lot easier, And so, if, especially if, if it's filled out. Um, there's not a requirement that healthcare providers have to initiate it, but it does legally require that it be honored. And it also provides immunity. So if you have this pulse form and it says, you know, do not resuscitate comfort measures, um, and you implement that, and then a family member comes in at a later time, you know, and is very angry, I mean, you, you're protected by this form. Um, but we will talk a little bit about what, you know, what happens when there's a difference of opinion between the family and the, or the patient and the form. Um, so... A lot of people ask, well, does it replace a healthcare directive? Okay, it doesn't do that. It complements a healthcare directive. Okay, um, a healthcare directive, advanced healthcare directive, generally allows you to name a healthcare decision maker and makes general sta statements about your healthcare wishes. Typically, you've probably seen advanced healthcare directive says, you know, if there's no hope and I'm dying, I don't want anything, which is like totally unhelpful, right? Because when is that ever truly the case? Um, uh, um, or it truly is the case that, you know, whether it's, you know, an hour, death is an hour away or a week away is the question. Um, so the idea is that everyone over the age of 18 really should have an advanced health care directive, um, but that's not, doesn't really happen, but that's, that's the goal. Um, so the idea on the continuum is that you have an advanced health care directive when you're 18, and then you get diagnosed with a serious illness, and then you have a pulse. Okay, so you shouldn't be expecting everybody that comes in to have a pulse, but over the, over the next few years, we're hoping that you'll see more. Um, but this is kind of where it felt, fits into the continuum. So, um, so you know, it really is, um, so that you'll notice that the pulse has to be signed by a physician and the patient or surrogate healthcare decision maker. That's really what makes it different than, say, an advanced healthcare directive. That does not have to be signed. But... It, um, the pulse has to be signed by a physician. Now, a lot of times, nurse practitioners and social workers can have the, comp the pulse conversation with a patient, and it's a pretty involved conversation. You know, it's not just like, 
it's not, the idea behind a pulse is it's not supposed to be just a checkbox. It's supposed to be a real conversation about what your goals and what you're hoping for. So I don't really think this is something that you should be filling out in the emergency department um, and sending home with patients because it really requires somebody to really sit down for, you know, 20, 30 minutes and really kind of go over um, what your philosophy of life and your goals are. So don't fill them out, but you need to know what to do with them if someone shows up with them. Um, so the difference between, now some of you may have seen pre-hospital DNR forms, which is similar and it's a physician order and it has to be signed by a physician um, and patient. But the pulse um, allows you to choose resuscitation if you want and allows for other medical treatments like antibiotics and um, uh, different levels of care that we'll go into. And it's honored across all healthcare settings. A pre-hospital DNR is really only honored outside the hospital and only applies to resuscitation and only allows you to choose a DNR. So it's, it's a little more restrictive. Like I've been giving patients, I don't know if they've ever shown up with one, but I send lots of patients out without a hospital DNRs. Um, and who knows what happens to them. I mean, that's also the problem with the pulse. But the, the idea behind the pulse is that you, the best place to keep it is on the refrigerator. And then you, you know, really stress to the patient. And it would be good for you guys to stress to the patients also when they go out, they should come back with one. They should bring it back whenever they come to the ER. I'm like, oh, this was really helpful. Thank you. Next time, please bring this. Um, along with your medication list. Along with your medication list. Exactly. Um, on brain, pick paper. Um, so, you know, it's, vision, it's visible, actionable, it's collaborative, it's, you know, it's, there should also be a phone number for the doctor who filled it out. Um, and it's more specific. I mean, it gives you definitely some guidance and it's, it's something that's flexible. So it can be, um, you know, it's a guide for discussion. Um, so one of the difficulties is, you know, it, 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 it's a guide for you and, and, and it, gives you some direction about conversations that have happened in the past, but um, it's also something that can be, re I mean, the, the, the law states that it, it, it can be readdressed at any point, when it, and, it, and it is appropriate for it to be readdressed when the patient comes back to the, you know, changes a plan of care. Um, but I would stress to you that you, you really should think hard before you completely overturn somebody's pulse. Um, and a lot of it can, can really can hinge on the phraseology that you use, okay? And we'll kind of go into that a little bit. Um, um, you know, and the other real sticky issue is what, you know, on the post form, if you look at the back, there's a spot for, to for someone to name their healthcare decision maker. Now, this is not a legally binding healthcare decision maker, like an advanced healthcare directive is legally binding. This is not legally binding, however, if someone is named as the healthcare decision maker on that form, that is something that you should follow, okay? But if they have an advanced health health directive that names a different person, then that person takes precedent. Um, so, you know, one question is what would you do? So if someone's um, do not resuscitate, limited intervention, but they, um, their person that's named as their healthcare proxy wants to change them to be full code. Um, you know, what are you gonna do in that kind of scenario? Um, and I think that if they're the proxy and you have a conversation with them and you feel that they're in good understanding of the, of the risks and benefits and 
you know, you can change the pulsed form at that point, or you can nullify it. Um, if it's somebody's friend and it's not the person named on the decision uh, as the decision maker, you're probably best off. I mean, you really are best off following the pulsed. So it can be tricky, um, you know, if you have someone in direct opposition, but um, if that person is the closest relative or the durable power, then um, and they want to change things because it is a different, and the, the argument is that it's a, the scenario may now be different than when they filled out the polls. Um, okay, so um, I think it's important to just kind of go through it so that um, so that you understand. Um, oh, that may be my phone. Just ignore it. It'll or turn it off. Sorry. Um, okay, so section A. Okay. What this really separates is um, someone who has, this is just if you do not have a pulse and you are not breathing, okay? So it's different than, you know, it's not, it's just if they're not, if they're pulseless and not breathing, it's just cardiopulmon, true cardiopulmonary resuscitation, yes or no, okay? Section B is the where does this patient go section, I call it for the ER residents. So if someone, and you, what do you do for them? So a patient who's comfort measures only, you know, this is a palliative care patient, this is an actively dying patient, um, you know, it says use medication by any route, wound care and other measures to release pain and suffering, use oxygen suction, manual treatment as needed for comfort. Antibiotics only to promote comfort, okay? So what does that mean? Well, when would you use antibiotics just for comfort? What's the scenario you could imagine? Okay, good, good, good. Winter antibiotics may be not really comfort for comfort. Right, so the patient's actively dying from sepsis. Antibiotics are probably gonna prolong their dying process, okay? So, you know, probably not a good idea. Um, but you know, these are the patients that you would give oxygen to, but you could make the argument that a pole face mask is very uncomfortable. So nasal prongs, but maybe using the morphine to control their breathing instead of a giant face mask. BiPAP is never, ever appropriate for comfort measure patients, okay? There's nothing more horrible than a death from BiPAP, on BiPAP. Um, it's one of my least favorite um, interventions. Um, on the other hand, if the patient is not Right. Although you could make the argument that it's not, because when someone's intubated, they um, are, can be sedated. Okay. Um, but then the family has to make the decision to take that away, which is very traumatic. So there's always these balances. Um, Dying of, dying of uh, anemia is painless. You, you, you go out, my father-in-law had 
Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, are there scenarios where the patient has a more decent quality of life and they have a slow bleed, and, but if they get periodic transfusions, it helps keep them active and engaged? Maybe there's a, there's a place for that. But in a patient who is suffering, um, you know, I, I, a lot of times, um, you know, people, families and patients get very glommed onto certain certain interventions, and the intervention is a proxy for hope. Well, if they're still doing this for me, then there's hope, they haven't abandoned me, I'm still getting treatment. Um, so a lot of times I'll talk about, well, these, you know, are we prolonging life or are we prolonging death? And are we prolonging the dying process? And, and, and what Dr. Burns is saying is that, you know, there are treatments that we do that just prolong people's dying process. You know, artificial hydration and nutrition is very similar to this you know, periodic transfusion issue. You know, there's many studies showing that patients in the end of life do not feel hungry, they do not feel thirsty, and if they're more dehydrated, they're more sedated, and actually their pain scores tend to be lower. Um, so you really have to think about are these interventions, you know, what message am I sending to the family, and are these, am I prolonging life or am I prolonging death? And saying that to them, I say that to families a lot. I think we're prolonging the dying process and making it more difficult for your loved one. Okay. Um, so comfort measures, you know, and it also says transfer if comfort measures cannot be met in current location. <laughs> Maybe I should take the, uh, um, anyway, transfer of comfort needs cannot be met in current location. So sometimes a comfort measure patient, you know, maybe they need a, a morphine drip or maybe they, the family just couldn't handle it in the home and, and they needed help. Um, Limited additional intervention includes uh, medical treatment, antibiotics, IV fluids, do not intubate, may use non-invasive positive airway pressure, generally avoid intensive care. So the nice thing about this form is that it tells you where the patient goes. Okay, a limited intervention patient does not go to the ICU. Okay, and then full treatment includes care, intubation, advanced airway interventions, mechanical ventilation, transfer to hospital includes intensive care. So, so. If you want, if, if on A, you are attempt resuscitation, you must be full treatment. However, if you're DNR, you obviously could be comfort measures or limited treatment, but you can also be full treatment. Okay, a full treatment DNR patient means if I don't have a pulse and I'm not breathing, so if I'm dead, don't bring me back. But pressors, mechanical ventilation may be tried possibly for um, a trial of treatment, okay? So does that make sense? Um, and then C, artificially administered nutrition. Sometimes I don't always fill that out. Um, they can be filled out. And then, and then the signatures um, on the back. And then on the back it says who the healthcare directive is. Um, so, okay, so full treatment. Um, you know, this idea that maybe you want a trial period, not to be kept on life support if not expected to recover. And I'll say that a lot of times to patients. I was like, well, you know, if you got very sick, would you want a trial of life support maybe on the 10 or 20% chance that you could survive that? Um, or would you just want to be comfortable? Um, so, um, so interpreting the pulse to interventions for comfort, we kind of talked about all that. I think I probably went through most of this. 
Um, okay, so let's do um, let's do the case. 94-year-old patient with COPD, CHF has chosen comfort measures. You see him in the ER with a swollen leg. He's acutely dyspneic with reduced level of consciousness, and you are called. How should he be treated? What do you think? What would you do and what would you not do? Supplemental O2, Okay, supplemental O2. How much? Right. So usually kind of four, four, six liters. You know, one of the other problems with the nasal cannula, when you get up to six liters, you get a very dry mouth. It can be harder for the patients to talk. And again, like communication, you know, maybe there can be communication at the end of life. You don't want to do anything to impede that, which is why, you know, a big face mask with a non-rebreather, it's really hard to kind of have those really intense interactions and saying goodbye and that kind of thing. So, so supplemental oxygen. Okay, what else? Okay, pain medication. It can't be comfortable being short of breath, so I don't know if it's a diuretic or maybe it could be a comfort measure. Yeah, that could be. That could be. So, and, and to see whether, I mean, you could, would you do a chest x-ray on him? Okay, I mean, that's fairly non-invasive. You could consider that. Um, you know, or you could just listen to his lungs and see if you, if you felt real crackly um, and do that instead um, and just see, you know, is there... But most likely, you know, given the presentation, it's probably not CHF, right? What is it? Probably. It's a P. It's probably a P. Um, and what else can you do for shortness of breath besides oxygen? Morphine. So how would you administer that? Yeah. You could do a drip. You could do two milligram an hour drip, um, and then you could do like two milligrams. Typically, it takes six to ten minutes for IV morphine to start working. So I would typically do two milligram per hour drip, and then ask the nurse to give two milligrams every 15 minutes to keep, you know, respiratory rate less than 20. Um, Okay. Who wants to tackle that one? What is euthanasia? If you're, you're giving morphine to suppress the respiratory effort, which is necessary for the well, you're not doing that, though. <clears throat> That's partially what it does, though. But you're getting it to change the pulmonary stress receptors, which make you feel sick, which make you have less effect, right? That's mm -hmm. why you're giving it. But does it re reduce the length of your life? Very likely. If you breathe at 40, you may live an hour longer, but what? Um, but but what, what is the definition of euthanasia? Randy, what do you think? Okay, so a physician, you know, giving someone a shot of KCL for the express purpose of ending their life. That is euthanasia, okay? Giving medication in an effort to promote comfort may shorten life, but if you are giving the drug to make the patient comfortable, to make them not die a gasping death, that is not euthanasia, okay? Even if your treatments may hasten death, because that is not your intent 
and you're always will always be protected by that. But you know, I think it's important to see that you know there's a lot of sort of discomfort just in the room with that concept. So I think what's important for you to understand is there's a, there can also be a huge amount of discomfort amongst the family. I'm just curious, how many people have actually been with somebody and watched them die, not in the ER, in the visit, but in a personal way with a loved one or something, and gone through this whole process? Okay. Most of you haven't. Of the people that have, are you, are you uncomfortable with what she's saying? I guess what I'm getting at is if you've ever been through it, it's a lot less discomforting because you actually have a sense of what it's like to die There's a very good article in the New York, most recent New Yorker that I'll email to James and he can send it to you. It's by Atul Gawande and it's about, it's called, the title of it's called uh, Letting Go, What Should Medicine Do When It Can't Save Your Life? And dealing with um, these issues. But I think, you know, they bring up this really interesting point is it, it, a lot of times in my talks I show this picture of, it's like a 1898 painted fo painting called The Doctor and it's this picture of a doctor in a home um, attending to a sick child and it's this very kind of reverent painting of this physician and you know I said well if you think about 1898 think about what doctors could actually do that would actually help you like nothing I mean they would probably definitely hasten your death <laughs> um, yeah. and yet there were people love their doctors and they needed their doctors you know my dad tells us he's 80 and he tells a story about being a medical student in 1953 in, in Cook County hospital and, and how he sat all night with a dying cirrhotic patient and he watched him die over like 10 hours and at the very end the patient pulls out and he was homeless alcoholic he pulls out a license to practice medicine in the state of Illinois um, and my dad always like remember that story but think about it, in 1953 you know you weren't running around because there's hardly any tests to get so you actually would sit with a dying patient for nine hours well we don't do that anymore so one of the problems is that we only, as physicians, we only see ourselves as what we can do for patients to help them get better. And we view ourselves as failures when we can't do that. You know, and um, I think one of the things that I would really, really encourage you is very, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, well, how do you do your job? Like, you know, isn't it depressing? I mean, 
and I joke, I say, you know, back in 2003, I actually helped somebody live longer. Um, but, you know, most of the time, I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you know, nothing I do helps anyone live longer. Um, but I feel like I have the best job in the hospital because I, people are so in need when they have a dying relative and they, they are so scared and you are their first contact when they're going through this. If you can help a family through the dying process, it's, it's, a, it's one of the most rewarding things as an ER doctor and you, they, and you can make them feel comfortable and you can, because they're so afraid, what they're really afraid of is what they talked about, they're desperately afraid of suffering. They're desperately afraid that their relative will die a dyspneic death or a painful death or you know, howling or screaming in delirium. So if you can treat that and help them through that, it really, it really is a very rewarding experience. Um, so, I, you know, so I think all these are good. I think you know, if you have a comfort measure patient, you know, it, these are kind of difficult, challenging scenarios to work through. So I really, really would also encourage you to call us to help you through this, um, you know, even if it's two in the morning and you're, I think probably the hardest thing is starting an opiate drip and opiate treatment on a dyspneic patient. Um, you know, we had one recently who had lymphangitic spread from gastric cancer. He was on a non-rebreather and he chose to die. Um, and he just was tired and had had enough. And uh, so we gave him, he was, he was on a PCA. So sometimes I'll put these patients, if they're with it, um, I'll put him on a PCA. He was on four milligrams with a 10-minute lockout PCA for two days while his priest came and he gave last rites and he said goodbye to his family. And then when he was ready, we gave him two milligrams of Ativan and eight milligrams of morphine um, per hour and every 10 minutes and we pulled the, we pulled the oxygen off. Um, so, you know, that's always an option also is to remove, um, to remove oxygen in a, in a controlled fashion. Um, when you know you feel a patient truly is actively dying and you're just prolonging that so the removal of artificial life support is um, is also something that uh, with adequate sedation and, and pain management can be done but it's probably a good good to have us just kind of holding your hand and helping you through so it what would be the starting dose for the morphine drip that you would use for the morphine administration so opiate naive patient two milligrams. So two milligram bolus, two milligrams an hour, and two milligrams every 15 minutes um, to promote, um, to see if you can get their dyspnea under control. And then, you know, if they're... So, so, the, so you titrate to dyspnea as an end point. Yeah, yeah. Dyspnea. Yeah, and typically what I'll tell the nurses is a respiratory rate less than 20. And again, with a respiratory rate less than 20, you're not saying a respiratory rate less than two, you know. That is so the, the physician said that it was euthanasia? Another physician said, some people consider this euthanasia, but it's really just, uh, patient, it was done. All the, all the patient's daughter could hear was euthanasia. euthanasia. Oh, um, no. So that's why I And then the, the second one was, um, in the ICU, the nurses can't, they keep telling us, you can't titrate to dyspnea. You have to give us an order we can titrate to. Right. There's no such thing, the pharmacy won't allow, JCO won't allow titration to Right. So that's why I say respiratory rate less than 20, because I've run into the same problem. But they won't even do respiratory rate. They won't do it. Yeah, they will now, actually. They will. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, they'll months, do. Since six months ago, I, I mean, we're calling you. Yeah. Can you just talk to this nurse, please? Yeah. <laughs> so the, I find in my work 
the hardest people to deal with are the doctors and the nurses when it comes to end of life care. The families, if all I had to deal with was the families, I would have like the world's easiest job because um, families are very easy um, for the most part. I mean, sometimes you have difficult, but the doctors and the nurses, people are very uncomfortable and feel very threatened um, by this. So, you know, and they, they sort of think that I'm... And there's and people, people are scared, yeah. All right, and even even you know the four years or so you've been here, I've I've started out uncomfortable and not uncomfortable at all. If I could call you and drop in the hat, and the reason I ask about the morphine doses is I'd be ready to start it myself. Yeah. You know, under the right circumstances. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. Um, so what else was I going to say about that? So so would you admit this person? Would you heparinize this? What do you think? Any other interventions? No CT angio. Okay, good. Because you're not going to treat it, right? There are some arguments. Oh, go ahead, Sharon. All right, so that was a, another topic, but I think we can actually do that quickly now because it's a pretty easy topic. The what do you do with a hospice patient that winds up in your ER topic. Um, so the number one, two, and three thing that you must do is call the hospice, okay? Find out what hospice they're on. I mean, we have a patient, so I'm on the SWAT team right now. We have a patient uh, that was admitted last night for um, Cirrhosis. He's been a frequent flyer like a gazillion times, and we're trying to. And he had met with hospice. Blah, blah blah. Anyway, we find out. I found out like as I was walking over here. Oh, he's been on companion hospice for a month. <laughs> you know, and again, it might have been difficult to know that because I think he might have been here on his own. You know, without family. But um, so it's always good to know. Try to find out if someone is on hospice. Um, but if they are, call the hospice because what'll because the hospice does not want their patient in the emergency room. Yes. So that's what's supposed to happen. I mean, the patients get this, you know, the hospice nurse comes and admits the patient and they're told, okay, if anything happens, don't call 911, call us. But sometimes people freak out and they call 911 instead. Patient ends up, in, you know, in the emergency room. So sometimes, you know, and a hospice always has an emergency number. They always have a nurse who's available. And the best thing that can happen is that the hospice nurse comes out to the emergency room, you know, meets with the family and convinces them to go back home on hospice. Okay, that's best case scenario. Maybe this family hated that hospice and they didn't want that hospice anymore. Um, in which case, would they like to meet with another hospice? You know, your case manager can do that. Or, you know, they may need to be admitted. But, um, so just a little bit about hospice in general. If a patient, so hospice, 
you know, for patients who have six months or less, a physician has to state that and sign, sign that they do. The hospice is paid $140 a day to cover everything, okay? That's equipment, that's medications, that's all this stuff. So that they do not do things like blood transfusions, chemo, radiation. Um, sometimes they do not do TPN. They do not do blood draws generally. Um, you know, sometimes they will do um, antibiotics, uh, tube feeds. Um, you know, if a patient has had tube feeds ongoing, um, they can do these things. But so you really have to think if a patient comes in from hospice, like you know, doing things like transfusions and. Lots of studies kind of gives this message, can give this message to the patient that it's like, um, well, we don't, uh, we're doing all these things that your hospice wasn't doing. And should they, and then the family thinks, well, maybe we should have been having all these things done. So you just have to be a little careful. So call the hospice, see if they understand, you know, what's going on. They may say, you know, oh my God, this family, we don't want anything to do with this family, they're crazy. You know, we've told them a million times, and they've come to the ER a million times and we're done. Um, but also call us because we can also kind of help organize that. Because it was, uh, it's kind of, I don't know if it's a language barrier, but the patient came in at like four in the morning. And um, wife, what happened was like, they had a caretaker and the, the wife was taking care of this patient at home with a caretaker. And then he's been having some sort of like drainage from his like, like side, like some abdominal drainage that was like smelly. And so I think the caretaker called hospice and hung up on hospice and then called 911. Well, here's the other problem is they get paid $140 a day. So they cannot pay for an ER stay. So typically, technically, what will happen is if a patient does come into the ER, they will be discharged from hospice for that day so that the hospice doesn't incur the ER charge. And then they'll be readmitted the next day back onto hospice if they you know, want to be back on hospice. But most of the time, and let me know if you have a hospice that gives you trouble because I'm always trying to kind of have my pulse on which hospices are good. Because there's 30 hospices in Orange County, and I can tell you some are not very good. But there's five or six that we work with pretty routinely that are that are very good. And they should send a nurse to the ER. But it worked out that the case manager talked to the hospice and resolved it, and they decided not to like, forfeit. I don't know, something happened, they committed the case Right, so your we case manager, your case manager can really help yeah. with this kind of thing. But we were thinking about calling you, and we weren't sure. Oh, well, yeah, if I can be helpful, I'm happy to. Kind of okay, okay. But, um, but yeah, and sometimes it can be hard to know when, they, sometimes they're like, well, we met with hospice. Well, are you with hospice? They were definitely and, with hospice. Yeah, but sometimes it's, they're not very clear about that. Okay, um, all right, so here's another um, one. Care facility calls about 37-year-old woman with Downs. UA is obtained yesterday because she seems more confused, and she, now she's lethargic. Temperature is 102, heart rate is 110, BP is 80 over 56. Pulse says, do not attempt resuscitation, but limited treatment. What would you do in this case? Right. And admit her. And admit her. Right. But she doesn't go to the unit, she pressers, and maybe she's got. Hopefully, a decent chance of maybe coming through it. We'll see. But if she's septic and. So, no unit. Yeah. She's in septic right. shock. I go to unit. But she's, it's because of the do not attempt resuscitation and limited treatment. Right. So, limited intervention limited, states limited right. um, 
generally avoid intensive care. Now, however, would this be a scenario where you might, where you could consider readdressing the pulse? Um, and just, but it's, it's important to understand, you know, I think you have to be careful doing this. I think you can do it, but I think you have to, you know, if you can get hold of the DPOA, um, if you can't get hold of anybody and the patient can't make any decisions, then I think you have to follow that. You have to follow this. It's legally binding. Um, but if you are able to communicate with the DPOA, I think trying to understand, so tell me a little bit about when this pulse was filled out. What, what were you hoping to avoid? What were you hoping for? Um, a, a general phrase that I really like a lot that I use a lot is, if you think about doing everything you can to live longer, even if it means difficult treatments that might be painful, but doing absolutely everything versus just focusing on keeping being comfortable and not undergoing any difficult treatments to live longer. Where do you stand between those two extremes? It's kind of a good kind of gestalt opening question gets them talking. Um, and, you know, trying to understand, well, you know, what we're trying to avoid was, um, and then saying, well, you know, it's hard to know, but it's possible that with a trial of life support, it's possible that she could survive through this. The question is, does she have a quality of life that she would consider acceptable right now? And that's another important point. Is your quality of life to the point where you would want to try to do things to live longer? Okay. Because a lot of times if you phrase it, well, we could do this, this, and this, and, you know, she might make it. You know, people feel kind of guilty if they say, like, no, no, we wouldn't want that. So I think you have to be careful, but you could make the argument, well, would, would you want, a, you know, a trial of life support she may may help her through this, but a lot of it depends on, you know, her quality of life and whether she would want to go through that. And, you know, you could kind of go either way. But you could readdress the pulse in a setting like this. That would be if you can get a hold of the durable power. Does that make sense? Um, okay. Um, you know, also, a lot of times if you can communicate with the doctor who, because there should be a phone number there, and if it's during the day, I mean, maybe that could be helpful. Because a lot of times, you know, the hospital MD and the ERMD are separate from the personal physician um, and the SNF or the social worker who filled out the form. So the, the goal is to kind of link these two together, but that's not always possible. Um, but trying to talk to the, to the pulsed physician can be, can be helpful. Um, I don't know if people want to take a little bit of a break before we start the second half. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Five minutes. Sorry. My phone keeps ringing. My pager keeps ringing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's CK.